welcome to the Negroni Talks podcast, brought to you from East London and supported by Campari. Set up to be lively, provocative debates on issues around architecture, the Negroni Talks are hosted at the Venetian restaurant Ombre in Hackney and organised by architects Fourth Space with the assistance of Rob Fain and Bobby Jewell. The talks are designed to emulate the opinionated and convivial free-flowing debates found in the fin de siècle European Café Society, being fuelled by food, drink and particularly Negroni. There's no stage, no standing on ceremony and the audience are asked to participate as much as invited speakers and the chair for the event. These recordings are presented as they happen live and like the talks themselves with no frills and little or no editing to bring you the arguments of the evening direct and unfiltered. So as Rob said, my name is Dave, Dave Hill. I'm a journalist. I'm a freelance journalist and have been for over 40 years. I live just up the road in deepest Hackney. Website called onlondon.co.uk, which sort of explains itself. And before that, I was what was described as the Guardian's London commentator, which makes me sound far more important than I actually was. Um, and uh, also, yes, you should all buy my book, which is a story of the, uh, how the Olympic Park came to be. So I'm really interested in planning and architecture and how extraordinary things were done under extraordinary amounts of pressure. Go and buy it. Um, that's the commercial break over with. Um, the over, overarching theme of this evening, I suppose, is water. Um, um, how it's, uh, how it's organised, what we do with it, and so on. I know quite a lot about uh, buses and uh, houses and police officers in London, but I know very little about water, except that in London of late, we've either had nothing like enough of it, or far too much of it, or, or, or far too much of it. Um, culverts, reservoirs, rivers, estuaries, floodplains, drains. I'm afraid I'm all at sea and out of my depth in that territory. Okay, suit yourselves. Um, but by the end of this evening, I know I'm going to know a great deal more. So we have a deluxe trio of expert speakers, and I'm going to introduce them all in a moment. Um, uh, they're all going to talk for a bit, and then I'll ask them some questions for a bit, and then you are going to be uh, invited to participate fully. And the difference between this evening and other sorts of events you may go to is that you can ask questions of any of the speakers if you want to, but also you can go on a bit if you want to. So normally at these kinds of events, if somebody says, I'm not going to speak for long, and you know they're going to, and the person who's chairing has to say to them, do you think you could perhaps ask a question? at some point. Well, that doesn't apply this evening. You can actually hold forth and say your own piece uh, 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 if, if that's what you want to do. So I'm going to introduce each of the three uh, speakers just by, by name to start off with, and then they can tell you who they work for and what they do and, and do their bit. So the first one is sitting over there. His name is Andy Downey. Andy, would you like to Thank tell you. everybody else about yourself? You've got the microphone. I have a microphone. Um, good evening, everybody. My name is Andy, and I am an engineer. Um, and I'm using it in the broadest sense possible. My fascination is with things that you can see, and tonight it's also to do with the things that we cannot see, of which there are an enormous amount of them hidden away. 
Anyway, I'm sure there's plenty to cover or uncover with the unseen world. But I want to start by going back, I think it's about 135 years, to London in 1858, I believe. And summer of 1858 was a hot one. And it, not only was it a hot one, it was also a very smelly one. The great stink happened in 1858. And I wasn't... I was a little bit surprised when I was just checking my facts on this. Engineers, we do like to know our facts because it's kind of important with what we do. So I'm not going to give you too many numbers, but I do have a pocket full of numbers and I would like to share them later. But anyway, back to... It's 1858. It's incredibly hot. And the population of London, believe it or not, then, was about 3 million people. Hard to believe, 3 million people back then. We'd just got used in London at that moment in time to having uh, water that was supplied in pipes that were in cast iron and not in wooden things that weren't very efficient. And there was uh, these new things uh, invented by some chap called Cummings from Scotland that allowed you to flush your waste down the, down the toilet and you could forget about it or just disappear as if by magic. But it didn't really disappear. It sort of almost disappeared. In fact, it sort of got stuck in the Thames. And what happened that particular year, there was so much of it, because we were putting so much water down these drains, and everyone was getting so excited about these flushing things, that a combination of dry weather, heat, and all of this stuff created a humongous stink. And this was so bad, and at the same time, there's huge concerns on health as well, and cholera, and the, this idea that cholera is being spread by the smell, and, and so... Uh, instant action was required. And, of course, when you need instant action, you generally reach out for an engineer because that's what we do. We bring instant action and we fix things. So we reached out to an engineer called uh, Joseph Bazaljet. And Bazaljet had an idea to fix everything, and he was going to build pipes. Engineers like to design things that get built. And his idea was to build a network of pipes to collect the outfalls that were discharging into the Thames and shunt all of this waste, this sludge, to the east, further down out of the way of central London and just send it east. It's, it's the sort of the back door of London. And that's what he did. And he was basically became a superstar, an engineering superstar, not just of his age, but, but periods. Even this, to this day, people think what he did was absolutely amazing, brilliant, fantastic, saving hundreds of thousands of lives. And he got rid of the smell. So fast forward 130 years, and engineers have had another go at it, and we've just spent another $4.8 building another east from Acton to Beckton, and, and, and we're doing the same thing again. Now, my question, I'm an engineer that doesn't have many answers. Let that be clear right from the start. I like questions, not answers. Answers are easy. Good questions, so bear that in mind for later. Good questions are more interesting. My question to myself, my office, Paul is here, and everyone else, is maybe Basiljet got it wrong. Maybe the idea of just and using lots of fresh water to do it set the whole of the UK 
the whole of Europe and the whole of the world in the wrong direction. Because the use of water and big pipes and infrastructure to move stuff around as a waste slurry doesn't feel like a 21st century circular economy, sustainable, low energy approach to the problem of waste. So I'm gonna shut up now and just leave that one out there. So I am basically, as an engineer, standing up here and giving it the bad thumbs down on someone who's, who's generally regarded as uh, a hero engineer. And I think he got it wrong. Good Lord, okay. Okay, thank you, yes, round of applause, very good. Basil Jet was wrong, discuss. Okay, uh, that's a big one. So our second speaker is sitting over there. Her name is, I'm going to get this right, her name is Katerina Erne. That's right, I'm going to get up as well. Take it away. Um, thank you everyone for being here. My name is Katerina, or Kati, just to add another complication to the name here. Um, I am a landscape architect, and I'm here to talk about the many beautiful myriad ways of bringing together sustainable urban drainage, people, biodiversity, public life, and the whole shebang in a beautiful hole and how to do this in a wonderful creative way and each project is different and I've got a really lovely portfolio of different projects where we did different things and I'd be more than happy to talk about any of these and tell you little story tales of how we did this. Um, my specialism is um, people's landscapes. Um, and um, very much also historic landscapes, biodiversity, and also SATs. And we've got... Next one. See what? Yeah. I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, 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 no. All right. Like, we'll I, want, I, want, I want people to ask me things. We'll be coming back to you later yeah. in that case. Okay, so let's go on to our third speaker. Oh, there he is over there. Uh, and he is Michael Judd. Michael, tell us who you are and what you do and what you think. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm Mike Judd. I'm a, an architect, associate director at Hawkins Brown. Uh, I work primarily in residential design. Um, so I work across... Uh, from you know, kind of major uh, master plan level uh, level work down to individual buildings. Um, I'm hoping tonight's going to be somewhat therapeutic. I think you know what I'd like to share is you know, at the uh, you know, at the best end of this conversation. It's all of the great things that, that Katarina's talking about, and you know a lot of what we're going to talk about tonight just leads to nicer places that people want to be. And I think that's great. I think there's lots of things that we do in you know policy terms in in how we kind of set up our you know our planning process how we think about projects in the long term that stop us doing sensible things and you know I think to to talk to Andy's point you know I think we're very good at this country and sort of you know pushing our luck on how things work for a long period of time and then thinking shit this doesn't work anymore what do we do and then uh uh, and then we go again and make the same mistakes again. So I think, you know, hopefully what we can you know, come, come together tonight is that there's, you know, there's lots of different scales on this. There's the grand interventions that sometimes are necessary that lead to, you know, kind of better, better spaces and, and great things. But also there's, you know, kind of fiddly little technical bits that actually, you know, on, a, uh, on an impactful scale can probably have as big an impact as, as putting a four and a half billion pipe through the centre of London. So I think, yeah, looking forward to some, some debate. Okay, all right. God, you're all a bit brief, aren't you? This is not really good. Um, so I'm going to go back to, to Andy at the beginning there. And you, 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 you've uh, created, committed 
you know, sacrilege by saying what you said. You perfectly were what you were doing as well. You know, there's no need to look innocent. We all know. Conscious move. Okay, okay. So if you were if you were starting all over again, all right, um, same sorts of problems that Basil Jet we thought had solved, but you say he hadn't. But if if you were starting again, let's say we're starting again now, what would you do? What should, what, should be, what should be done differently now? I'm sort of touching on the arguments about the super sewer. Is it just a complete racket? Should we be doing other stuff? So how would you go about things? You, 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 like, you like questions, you like problems. So solve that one for us. <laughs> um, Take as long as you want. I, th I think one of the... Um, with, with solutions, we, uh, engineers historically tend to reach for grandiose um, interventions, things that, things that you can build, you can cut a ribbon, and it looks like it's going to do something. And you can walk away from it and you can kind of say, well, that was massive and it's going to work. Yeah, I can see why you spent $4.8 billion um, on, a, on a pipe that where you can... But, you know, I don't know if people can imagine how big this pipe actually is. It's... 7.2 meters diameter internally. You can you can place three double-decker buses buses next to each other inside it. It it is absolutely staggering in, in, in its size and its scale. And um, there's an, I've been told there's an article in the Guardian today or yesterday um, that basically says just reminding people that actually it may not be big enough either. It may not work, and we're still going to release. Um, sewage into the Thames because we, uh, an engineer somewhere, didn't size it correctly because, well, they were never going to size it correctly because it's an almost impossible thing to do. Anyway, I'm doing that political thing now where I'm not actually answering the question, so I can feel that coming I can feel this coming in uh, from over there. I think where I would start with this is that if you do go back to the uh, 17th and 18th century that um, we there the, were the, the, the night um, the night soil collectors, the honey collectors used to come and collect solid waste, and that solid waste would then be used as as fertilizer um, because it, it, we use the word waste, and every time you use the word waste, you get to the wrong position because we have to get rid of the notion of producing waste because what waste ends up costing us energy and it causes more problems for us, so perhaps we should start to think more about keeping things that are separate, separate. And we should really start to think about the value of the water that we're using. So I would start with the, the world's most used commodity, which is water. And it is used with absolute contempt in the Western world. We just throw it around like it costs nothing. And then it causes problems for us later on. So first and foremost, I've got some more things on this. I'd like to hear what other people have got to say about this. But maybe taking this up a level is the problem is with the use of water. Because if we didn't have water, we wouldn't mix up our... We're going to have to get a conversation. I've got Oscar here looking at me. And Oscar's an, uh, um, an expert. And <laughs> is that what you say? Okay. Yeah. So I don't want to. 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 So I
use of water to mix things up and create this sort of composite sludge that we then use more water to separate and more energy that then causes us problems with pollution and everything else is where it goes wrong. So I, my starting point is things separate and, and, and then deal with the issues that they then create. Okay, and it's rather an enigmatic thing you've just said there. So, so we're going to press you on that a bit later on. But can we get back to this? So there's this sense of crisis, isn't there? And that we might not be doing the right thing. So we're talking about weather, weather conditions and you know, the extraordinary heat of the summer. And then we have these extraordinary floods, uh, downpours of rain where everything floods. So there is a sense that, that the whole way in which we manage water, as you say, has got to be rethought. We've got to think about it in a different way. And that's partly what you're, what you're driving at, I think, isn't no, it? No, absolutely. I, I mean, people talk about climate change. If we were perhaps to think that, let's say that climate change has happened, and now we need to deal with it. So, and dealing with it, you could say, and a nice thing is that 2022, summer, we're all going to experience going forward which is quite an interesting way of thinking about it. Uh -huh. So the change has happened, so now we've got to manage it. We've got to deal with it. We've got to live with it. And what we shouldn't do, we, some thing, we shouldn't deploy engineering and architecture to, to deal with, with this consequence. We've got to be much more subtle, and we've got to think more carefully and ask better questions before reaching for these solutions. We don't, and we shouldn't, and we mustn't pour thousands of tonnes of concrete. If I said that water is the most used commodity on the planet, the second most used commodity on the planet is concrete. So it's a bit odd, isn't it, that we're dealing with, we're using too much of the first that causes a problem, and to solve the problem, we're using the second most used thing on the planet. So you're sort of talking about a kind of mindset and culture change, aren't you, which would work its way through into how you go, someone like you goes about their job. Is that a reasonable summary? I, I, absolutely right. I think what we are talking about is, is a wholesale change in, in people's habits and, and, and literally how, that, how they live their life. Water, you could ask the question, and come back to me on this one, perhaps it's just too cheap. It's too readily available. And we use it with contempt. We just sort of like, you know, we, we use the, this precious material to flush stuff down the toilet, to, to wash stuff away. We just, it just throws it away because it doesn't matter because it'll come out of the tap again. And it's always there in this country. All right. It's always there. Okay. All right. So, okay, I'm going to come to you now, Katerina. So, so, so it's a rather broad question. Here comes the mic. Great. Okay. Go on. Um, so in this context of, of sort of, uh, anxiety, justified anxiety about what is going to happen to us as a city, as a species and the management and control of water and waste is integral to the big challenges. So, you know, the, the three speakers are in, are in separate but related fields. So, in your particular specialism, you know, what are the lessons that, that you and colleagues and, and people that you work alongside with should be, should be learning and how should they be thinking differently in the way that Andy described? 
Well, exactly, and I really um, want to congratulate Andy for what he just said. It is so important to start thinking differently of how we can approach things. I am more at the end of when the water comes down from the skies, falls onto things rather than it coming out the other end. And there's a lot that can be done here as well. I just wonder whether it's worth explaining SATs quickly. Does is everyone know what, what SATs are? Yeah, please do and, explain. Uh, okay, so great. that stands for Sustainable Urban Drainage Systems. And it's, it's the basic promise of like, um, like t trying to knock off the high flood levels in, in a way of, because how, how it works in the urban environment is we've got a lot of paved over areas. Um, when rainwater falls onto it, it goes to the gully, goes into, into your systems and goes out and kind of everything floods. Um, in a natural environment, let's say a forest, it goes onto the leaves, leaves hold an incredible amount of water actually, goes onto, onto the soil and then by the time it kind of filtrates out on into the river, it kind of, you know, the, the big rain events, just as time has passed and there is less of kind of a wave of flood. Sats really employ the same idea that we slow water down so not all the water rushes in one big gust into, into our rivers which then cause flooding. So that's, that's the basic premise of, floods, of Sats. Now, having new projects, um, and we're going to have a little dig at engineers here, I'm really sorry. There's, there's the standard way of doing this in, is in very engineered solutions. Big tank underwater, big crates that gets filled and then the water gets discharged slowly over time into systems. Very expensive, um, not really sustainable in any other sense other than not trying to help with SATs. And what I'm really advocating here, there's such a better way of doing this and that needs creativity, working together with engineers. Um, and there's plenty of very good engineers, for sure. Um, and for instance, uh, what we did at one project, which is just so wonderful and still going through the planning phases, but um, we had a really, in, in a park, so we're having a park in this project, um, there was a big crate, massive, massive underground tank system of 30 by 60 meters by 3 meters depth, big. Um, cost... 1.5 million. It's underground. No one can see it. You can't plant any trees over the top. You hardly can do anything over the top there of how they wanted to do it. It's really of no use to anyone other than to the SADs. And then working together with the client and the engineers, we were able to change this completely to make the water visible. So to create a park that kind of depending on the rainwater flood events, that is statistical events, they're totally statistical, but it's like a one in 10 year flood, a one in 30 year flood, a one in 100 year flood plus climate change. And kind of have um, in a swale system that then also acts as a playground, have like deal with the one in 10 uh, um, your floods in there. So this swell floods and then discharges the, the water again. And then more and more areas of the park get flooded depending on, on the rainwater events. And it's wonderful because now we can use the 1.5 million for the underground crate to build an amazing park, put in one wonderful play, make the water visible, deal with... Um, deal with um, basically with, with the SATS function that we needed and create a wonderful biodiverse landscapes because nothing is better for the biodiversity than kind of areas that flood and recede again. So we, we've gone from one totally over-engineered solution to just a complete win-win-win-win situation for everyone involved. 
and that needs working with clients and, and, and lots of different agencies, but also kind of creative thinking. And there's lots of other different things, but I think I'm going to stop now because then I don't have anything to say anymore. No, no, no. <laughs> well, I do want to ask you one, just follow up on that. So yeah. It's very interesting. So, um, uh, I, I just, I'm just remembering as you spoke uh, uh, an article that, that I published by a, by a London politician actually talking about the sorts of things you're talking about and making the point that some of these things can actually be done sort of now. A lot of these things in the, in the short term which could alleviate um, particular local problems in different parts of the, of the city for example. So is that true and are you finding that um, uh, the, the, the planning system and rules and the uh, attitude of, of, of clients are receptive to doing more of the kinds of things you've just described? So I think there's three questions now. Question number one, yes. <laughs> there are things that can be done now. Absolutely, and plenty of things. Question number two, planning system. Yes, planning system is helpful as it is helpful with urban greening factor. Some of you might be um, um, kind of uh, have heard about it. It's another planning tool where, where um, you have to get to a certain factor in order to get planning, so to speak, and it basically calculates um, um, the area based on um, kind of like how much greening there is and areas that are um, completely impermeable score are zero, whereas, for instance, permeable surface is 0 0.1 and then all the, and it kind of goes up depending on what type of vegetation is and how valuable that is. And then question number three, I have forgotten now. So have I, but never mind. Okay, great. We'll come back to it. We'll come back to it. <laughs> Does anyone remember question number three? <laughs> I think it was probably, I think it was a bit of an add-on to question number two, and I think you've covered okay, it. Okay, great. That's what we'll say anyway. So can we come to Michael now, please? And so, so really just to ask whatever it was, I asked Katerina, um, looking at the, the, the wider context of uh, uh, legitimate anxieties about uh, climate change, uh, as manifested in extreme changes in weather, and how does um, so how does the landscape, how does engineering, landscape experts, how do engineers uh, respond to that in the most productive way? So, in terms of what you do, what needs to change from 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 your point of view, please? I, I think it's interesting. I think the behaviour point, I think, is so fundamental particularly when we think about what we can do to what's already built and i think that's a you know, big part of the conversation i want to have tonight is that yeah it's very similar with the um uh yeah with what we're talking about with fuel poverty and insulating homes we have an immense amount of roof space uh in this in this country that's just discharging unattenuated into the into the system so to talk to the planning point i think there's a number of things that in planning law now and that are cut that are coming in that are helpful, but also I think there's you know there's some things that we can do to address these kind of you know these kind of micro things. Like, you know, if you if you think about the the sort of small end of the scale, uh, you know, should you be allowed permitted development without putting suds in? You know, should you be allowed to build more roof without your, on your house without demonstrating how you're going to deal with the water that comes off of that? That's something that would be really easy to enact. I mean, it's great that I think uh, as of last month, there's legislation going through to enforce suds at planning level on a on a a nationwide basis, which is which is phenomenal, but with, that doesn't absolutely nothing to address the stock that we've already got. And I think you know the behavioural change. Obviously, I think everyone in the room has has prices. I think you know Andy's absolutely right. Is is water too cheap? How do we affect 
how do we affect change in people? We're all so ingrained in the way that we live now that we're not thinking about this. And you know, is a financial shock the only way to motivate people? I really hope not. But um, you know, I, I think that's that's been proved with um, with other resources and other, other commodities. I think one of the things that is also that's great about the planning system is also problematic about the planning system as it sat, as it stands. I don't think we stress test particularly master plans enough as they go through the planning system. So I'm going to, this is where the cathartic bit comes in. Um, so I've, I've recently been delivering a, um, uh, a reserve matter scheme to a master plan that was consented uh, five years ago. Obviously the landscape's changed in terms of the way we service buildings, in the way that things like SUDs are considered. But what this, uh, what this master plan had enshrined in it was a greenfield runoff rate. So a, a greenfield runoff rate. So in, in drainage terms, that's an amount of rainwater discharging off the site equal to if it was a greenfield, you know, covered in uh, vegetation doing all of the attenuation. Which in of itself, yes, there's a myriad of different ways we can achieve that. But in Hackney Wick, where we have a building that has to be built to the back of a pavement line, where we have absolutely no public realm to put suds in, all of a sudden that's really not achievable and we're into things like you know do we can we put uh blue roofs on on the scheme and the level of blue roof we needed to achieve the greenfield runoff rate was actually more than any manufacturer would warrant so all of a sudden we can't get we can't do that we had drainage in the ground that was at such a high level that actually we couldn't do underground storage tanks so all of a sudden we've got a planning permission that's saying we have to do something on a on a project by project basis that's completely unachievable so no one stress tested that during the planning process. And I think when we look at things like uh, overheating, for example, you know, what we're in with now uh, with the new building regulations is that actually you have to demonstrate compliance and how you're going to mitigate overheating against a weather file 50 years down the line when it's, when it's three degrees hotter. And that's absolutely the thing we should be doing. But we're not doing that uh, to the same degree with things like drainage. So let me ask you, how can, how can that change that you, that you clearly want to see, how can it be brought about? Uh, I, I think it's you know it's on us as designers to be honest about the you know are we when we're doing you know fast design at master plan level are we really are we really going into enough detail are we telling our clients that we're going into enough detail are we you know giving ourselves wiggle room you know things like things like building heights and that kind of thing if we need to do things like blue roofs are we saying to the planners actually we want to bake in a little bit more flexibility in this because you're asking us to nail down how tall this building is and we haven't designed it. And so then all that happens every time you go back to do something with that master plan is you're challenging it and you're creating a combative environment and you're wasting time solving issues that didn't, didn't need to be solved in the first place if we just thought more holistically about the whole thing. Okay. I'm just going to ask uh, everybody gathered around to think about your questions and or punchy little speeches because we're coming on to those in a minute. I just want to ask you, uh, Mike, what do you know about plumbing? Uh, my best mate's a plumber. <laughs> <laughs> do, we need to, do, do you know a lot about plumbing uh, in houses? A, a, a reasonable amount in apartment buildings. Come around yeah. and look at my toilet later on. No, no. So, um, do we need to do these things differently? I've been doing some very superficial uh, research for this event, and there seem to be complicated discussions about how houses should be plumbed and mm. how many water closets you should have and whether we've got too many and... Am I making any... Are we speaking the same language here? Yeah, yeah. Can you, yeah. Can you elaborate for, for everybody, please? Um, yeah, it's interesting. Obviously, one of the things we... You know, we we're in an environment where, you know, obviously, we want to be 
doing yeah, accessible design and, and thinking about how homes are going to be adapted over the over the life of you know the life of them. So things like you know downstairs and upstairs toilets to you know for people with uh, who might develop mobility issues further down the line are obviously something we need to consider. But yeah, I do wonder whether actually you know kind of fitting everything out day one is is something that need or whether it is much more about you know only putting the things like additional bathrooms in if you actually need them later down the line i think there's okay. some opportunities there yeah it sounds as if we're going to have to be a bit more frugal about things is that is that true is that should we be depressed um i, th I could be i depressed. mean possibly i, I think the, the the behavior point's the interesting thing with me so i i worked on an office building uh, a few years ago and it was uh, a naturally ventilated building we moved two and a half thousand people into from an air-conditioned office into a naturally ventilated building and within the first few weeks all they had was complaints because no one understood how to open a window in an office environment and actually we had to have training courses for the people that worked in the building so you know it, it, it's we're, we're really ingrained in how we behave in in a in a lot of ways and yeah as i say it's how how do you get someone to change that behavior i think it's a really yeah it's it's the 100 million dollar question i think okay all right well that's great so look, look i'm going to stand up now and look around and see if there are people who want to raise a hand and either ask a question Oh, good, okay, or, or, or say something. So this is the hand I saw first. Here comes the, here comes the microphone, Paula. Oh, hi, hi everyone, I'm Paula. <laughs> so a um, little bit of background. Um, when I was um, a newly fledged architect, I did the drawings for um, the Lose in Blue Water shopping centre, who none of you have probably ever been in because, you know, architects. Um, <laughs> And it was good fun, but uh, now I come to reflect on it, I have got absolutely no idea what happened to the waste from them. So they're really nice, right? If you ever want uh, you know, to have a look at a really lovely loo, just go around Blue Water. And I mean, you know, time may have uh, damaged it over the years, but they are great. Um, but there is this kind of mystery, isn't it? It's like a detective mystery. Like, what happens to that? And I've never even asked myself the question till tonight. And Andy started talking. I was like, well, what did happen to all that shit? <laughs> and Ben, I, sorry, rambling a bit, but I'll go on. Yeah, I'll keep lab. going. Yeah, okay, it's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the other thing is, of course, Blue Water is, I mean, actually, it's quite interesting because it's, it's built in an old chalk quarry on one of London's premier aquifers, right? And an aquifer, I don't know if it's got a mention tonight. No, what, what is one of those? Please? An aquifer is a protected natural water storage facility. So it's a type of rock. Has anyone come across this where, where water is in? Yeah, so Steve, yeah, and Andy, I'm on air. <laughs> on the right track here. Um, and actually, I don't know, I, don't, I think the whole of London might, is, is an aquifer, right? I'm getting confirmation here from Andy, <laughs> so luckily. Um, and, and they're protected, you know, you can't just chuck anything down the drains. And if you see uh, someone chucking <coughs> stuff down um, a grate in the street, stop them, because you're going to be drinking that, right? You know, so it's, um, you know, it's quite, it, it's important. Um, so I'm a bit shy. Andy is my new friend here, but I am a bit surprised that you didn't mention in the Great Stink that they did a sort of initial scheme, and I don't know if Bazalgette was involved, and they sent the, the shit out to 
somewhere, Beckton. But un unfortunately, the tide, the Thames is tidal, and it brought it right back up the river. Um, has anyone got a guess for where it ended up? That Andy? Houses of Parliament, yeah. So all the shit ended up at the House of Parliament. And that really was the great stink, because they didn't really give a shit about what ended up in, um, you know, in Wapping. But they had to put lime curtains up <coughs> on their windows. <coughs> was it a swanky new building then? Was it like an, or yeah, they just put lime curtains up, right? Had, apparently the House of Parliament's got a very amazing, ancient, one of the first ventilation systems in, in the world, uh, powered by open fires, rather bizarrely. Um, but they just put the lime curtains up, and then they had to leave, right? So if you get the politicians to, if you get them in trouble, then something gets done. Like, every, everyone knows that, right? You know? So, anyway, a <laughs> bit of a ramble there, sorry. Right. But, but going on, going on, yeah, not, not too embarrassed to keep going. Um, so, at the moment, I've, got, I've just got a shepherd's hut delivered to, into my back garden in London Fields um, last year. And uh, for reasons I won't go into, it's meant to go somewhere else, actually, and uh, it's got a composting loo. Right, and I really want to compost shit from that, in, you know, in my back garden, just out there about 10 minutes. But I can't bring myself to broach the subject with my neighbour, Louise. <laughs> with my neighbour, Justin, who's um, an architect. What's Louise's problem? I think this is what we want to know. She hasn't got a problem, but I'm just okay. too embarrassed to say, is it all right if I compost shit? In what my... do you think she's going to say? This I... is important because there could be wider... <laughs> got a question and I don't know if anyone could answer it is mm. is like it's so much better to compost waste right and that's something that no one talks about uh much although I do read about it because I have a special interest well, it's the next field. best thing really isn't it yeah. yeah well I think it's better right it is better than just getting all this water and just chucking it down some drains but uh, apparently, uh, human waste is sold in bags in, of all places, Texas, and it's um, and it, and and I was I would look it up, but you know, it, everyone was too interesting about things. But um, it's got a name. It's got a kind of product. It's it's okay. commodified, and that is acceptable. So I mean mm. that that so it does happen around the world, but it's. You know, we have this cleanliness is next to godliness mm -hmm. thing. Okay. I mean, how we can put shit in the watercourses and then think of ourselves as clean is, is remarkable. A psychological leap would be required. It is yeah, remarkable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you just don't want to be downstream. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, building types through the ages, right, are, are predicated on that. Okay. Monasteries... Were, were, were placed, you know, upstream so that the waste went down, yeah, you know, okay. and that, so the fresh water came in. Okay. And we all want to be upstream, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, okay. But, yeah, is anyone, is anyone ever interested in doing a composting? This could be the moment for Oscar to dramatically Oscar. I could, yeah, good <laughs> intervention. But we had another hand up right. over there, which I haven't forgotten. So if we can let... Oscar display his expertise will then come so my my expertise is limited to about three months worth of um, research with a fellow called Lewis Foster 
we were going to take the plunge back in 2012 and do a documentary. Boom, boom. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, take the plunger. That, that, that would have been better, yeah. Uh, sorry, I missed that one. Um, we were going to do a poo documentary. And we pretty much knew, had it for certain, that no one else had done it, because it's taboo. And um, there's something, I mean, if you think about it, like, ultimately, everything we do reflects some aspect of our mind, right? So the word drain implies that something is full, and then you unlock some valve at the bottom, and then it goes away, and then it's out of the way. Out of sight, out of mind. We do that with our, with our problems, be they emotional, physical, operational, whatever. Um, and then eventually, a bit like what my mother used to say before she hit me. <laughs> she used to say, Oscar, you carry on like this, and the bag is going to inflate, because <laughs> I'd be rude or whatever, I'd be a kid. And then after a while, it's going to burst. And essentially, the Thames Tideway Tunnel is basically us extending the ability of this bag to, 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 to grow. Um, and it's going to cause problems. I mean, the, the only thing is at the moment, with Russia out of the picture when it comes to fertilizer, it could actually be a bit of a, an opportunity because, I mean, water is one of the, you know, it's one of the components, but fundamentally, the more important one is the nitrogens, the phosphates, everything else that's contained within that very complex mix that is produced within our digestive systems, but also within our sort of urban metabolism. Um, you know, and... There are, we do have technologies that process it. Um, the only thing is, water is very cheap, and so one of the solutions, a very easy one, is increase the price of water and never get elected again. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you increase the price of water, maybe there is a thing where you can kind of threshold it against a household and what the expected usage is, and then you just identify who the piss takers are. <laughs> That's another one, that, that was a good one. Um, because there are piss takers. I mean, anyone with a pool is a piss taker, period. <laughs> Two pools, double. Um, but, and then eventually maybe there's a solution where, you know, we, we start to claw back some of that and start investing in things like anaerobic digestion, um, be it sort of containerized. There's a wonderful company called Seab Energy that has shipping containers that you that they've turned into anaerobic digesters. You can stick... you explain what that? Or can you? So anaerobic what that is again. So anaerobic digestion. I mean, you can use it with food waste. You can use it with any organic waste. It basically um, uh, heats uh, waste in the absence of oxygen, and then that breaks down and it releases uh, all the organic sort of. Um, uh, turn into biogas, which you can then run a turbine with, and then it creates something called a gestate, which is a very nutrient-rich sludge. Uh, nutrient -rich sludge. Um, the reason I got interested in this is because I'm an architect with a focus on building integrated agriculture, uh, and so I was looking for nutrient feedbacks, so ways to sort of collect nutrients uh, from the city and then employ them in food growing. Now, there's a number of problems with using uh, digestate, uh, as with all organic fertilizers, is that it's actually quite a good uh, pathogen vector for a number of diseases. Um, but you can take this digestate, um, which is produced after a two-week process, you can dilute it 10 to 1, you can filter it and create essentially a compost tea. It's a very nutrient-rich mix uh, that you can use in, in, I mean, you can dash it on soil to, to sort of replenish it. Or you can use it in a hydroponic system, um, and it's very productive. Um, that's a pretty complex process, 
and it's far easier to just push down a lever and just watch it go away. And that's why we don't do that. But, as the gentleman over there said, with, uh, with this whole idea of, of rooftops, so one of the things that I focus on is on building integrated greenhouses. So one of my core sort of thesis items is that I think rooftops should not just be inert planes that divert water into systems that then throw it away somewhere outside, out of mind. They should be places where, um, as, as a bald man, um, I know what it's like to have the sun on my head, <laughs> and I don't like it. <laughs> um, it doesn't grow hair, <laughs> but buildings could effectively grow hair <laughs> or something rentable. Um, so, in, in a similar fashion, you know, we could our, our buildings could be a, a lot more productive, a lot more regenerative, which is the new kind of buzzword that's going to overtake sustainability, hopefully. Um, and so, you know, one of the things we could be doing is actually uh, putting things in the right place and maybe growing food on rooftops, as I've advocated for about 10 years now. Um, obviously, not very much progress, because um, otherwise it would be a bit more like France and America and Canada, or Singapore as one of the best examples, where they've got a, a policy to sort of grow 30% of their fresh produce to emancipate themselves from the Chinese market. Um, oh, Oscar. Fantastic. I could listen for hours, but I'm very mindful of the, the hand that was neglected over there. Are there any other hands that I... that, 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 that are, ooh, bit of a bit, 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 bit poor. Okay, but I'm sure you'll come round in a bit, so let, let's hear from that patient Hello. person there. Thank you. Um, I have nothing uh, specific to say as such, um, other than every time somebody talks, I want to jump in and say something, so I'll try and answer every... Every, everything at once. So, hello everybody. My name's Paul. I'm here with Andy. I'm a uh, civil engineer by, by trade and practice and general drainage enthusiast. So, um, and, and just generally in, in infrastructure. So, um, going to, is it Katarina? Katarina's point. So, it's good that Katarina's found some good engineers to work with that can take crates out of the ground and produce more holistic, sustainable solutions. Um, I think that's a very good thing. Uh, maybe one day we might work together and we can do something similar. But um, one thing that Katerina and Mike, Mike, yeah. Mike were both talking about is something at the, at the front end of development, private sector development, which is only coming about because there's a need for it. Someone needs some houses, someone needs an office or something like that. I don't know what that is as a percentage of the amount of construction work, but if you compare that to the amount of building stock we've got in the UK, it's a fraction of what's going on. So we're applying modern-day requirements and legislation to new types of building. So we might be knocking buildings down, we might be, I don't know, building on greenfield. Um, what we're avoiding here is the issue of how do we retrofit all of this good stuff to our existing building stock. And as Andy has alluded to, is it's not necessarily a big silver bullet intervention. It's more of a case of a lot of small interventions that are required by everybody and a, and a change in the way we think about water. Now, I am also an advocate of maybe we should make water more expensive, but I'm not necessarily sure what the fallout of that would be from like an agricultural and a, and a farming point of view. But... Um, one thing that Chris came up with earlier, which is a very good idea, is perhaps instead of taxing people with more 
uh, a higher inflated price of water, maybe you should ration water. Maybe when you build a house, you should give them like 150 litres per person per day tank size and say, that's all you've got for that 24-hour period. And once it's gone, it's gone. And that will stop the people which have the swimming pools and the lavish lifestyles, unless they want to pay a premium for that, and then you can tax them for it. But that's a way of tackling it. I think how you get people to pay for things is, is a really interesting point. I mean, if you take the... Uh, Take the grants that are available for air source heat pumps, for example. You know, the government get to shout from the rooftop about how we, you know, there's 450 million pounds or whatever it is for air source heat pumps. Now, the reality of that is that, you know, take, I, I live in a Victorian house. So take my house, for example. So it would cost about 10 grand to 15 grand to actually install the heat pump. So I've got my five grand from the government, but I've still got to find 10 grand. My, my walls aren't insulated because it's a Victorian house. So actually then I've got to find another 15 grand to insulate the house to make the system work in the first place. So all of a sudden, yes, there's an incentive, but there isn't because there's 25 grand that I've got to find. And, and, it, and it's a really, really kind of similar thing with, with water. So actually, you know, are we doing, you know, we have all of these payments that a developer has to make. You know, things like carbon offset payments and that kind of thing. You know, are we better thinking about things more locally and saying, well, actually, rather than allowing this, a developer to make a carbon offset payment to some nebulous organization that's going to fire tree saplings from a drone um, somewhere you know, thousands of miles away, actually, should that go into a local fund that then goes and actually funds regeneration projects on a house-by-house -house basis within that borough and makes a difference locally? And I think yeah, there's, yeah, we need to ask ourselves, you know, we, yeah, we're making developers spend millions of pounds. Where's that going? It's the question we get asked every time I do public consultation is, this is, this is all great, but where are the doctor's surgeries? Where are, you know, where's the transport infrastructure? Where is the, you know, where's Section 106 and SIL money going? And I think there's a, yeah, there's a big problem, A, with perception, but B, with where, you know, where these funds actually go and how we're, you know, how we're funding some of these changes we're talking about. Okay. Um, okay, another hand. Excellent. The microphone coming to you. There you go. Thank you. Um, I thought what you were saying, Paul, was kind of interesting. I'd like to hear a little bit more because it's you're, you're, you're kind of got a structured way of thinking, which has a certain degree of logic. But I was wondering if we kind of turn logic on its head a little bit. The thing that I'm, I'm having a problem with, which is what Andy started with and what Paul has alluded to, is that... It has to go somewhere, and yes, Oscar, yes, there's ways of recycling, and, you know, we're, we're getting more and more versed in things like that, and recycling and circular economies, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then there's the thing like the knowledge economy, which makes me wonder, um, with all the brain power that Cambridge has and invests in, and Oxford and the UK generally, um, I wonder if there's a way where they can reverse the logic on how we actually... Um, um, deal with can we pretend um, that it doesn't go anywhere can we pretend that it's not a problem can we actually change the way we think because in cities all over it's a real thing existing buildings Mike's building a Victorian house that's not going to you're not going to sort of solve the problem of suburban houses or Victorian houses or any existing infrastructure so can we get some I don't know um, if it's not water can it be air can it be nuclear fission can it be wind turbines that fire it somewhere and, and, and maybe get some of our knowledge economy working 
on the problem of, of reversing the way we think about flushing. Yeah? <laughs> okay, new thinking on flushing. I'm going to write that down and steal it. Thank you very much. We've got a hand over here, please. Thank you. Hello, hello. Um, two, two points. One which is going to directly follow after um, Steve's. But the one I had earlier was, so back to Bazalgette. So, <laughs> I, I always think there's usually three good ideas. One that goes, everyone goes for, one that no one's going to go for, and one that maybe someone will go for. So I want to know, do you know if Bazalgette has two other ideas? I think you sort of mentioned one that didn't work, but maybe there was another one, because he seems like a bit of a genius to me. Anyway, that was by the by. On to Steve's. So, I'm thinking... We're all happy to pick up dog shit and put it in bags. <laughs> Loads of people are, anyway. Is there something? Exactly. Is there something there? And also, do you remember in the 70s where dog shit used to go white and sort of disintegrate on the pavement? Should we be eating something that does that? <laughs> anyway, they're my two points. I'm not sure what the... Anybody got any answers to that last question? I'd like to hear them. Oscar again. So Basil Jett actually responded to, uh, I think it was a Metropolitan Works Commission competition. Um, and one of the, the, the... The second one that no one went for was W.H. Smith, who proposed using excess capacity in rail lines to cart human waste back out to outer London to fertilise fields. And if, they, if, if we'd gone and done that, the thing is, that's a long-term plan. And it ultimately, it comes down to short-termism versus long-termism. And, you know, getting the problem out of the way or solving it. You, buying time is not the same as solving a problem. And that's where we come into um, problems. In terms of, like, flinging shit with wind turbines, um, no. <laughs> um, however... There are these, again, AD at certain scales. If we were to have kind of basements and we were to sort of collect it and we'd have a service corridor connecting, like, say, blocks of housing, yes, you could. You, we could have um, blocks. We've got technologies that would render, like, blocks kind of more closed loop, if you like. I don't like that term, but, like, it, you could contain it somewhat and then you could manage at a municipal level some of the, you know, what spills over. There's another one. No? That was a good one. That was a good part. Come on. Anyway, um, but, but there, is, there are technologies. We just, whether or not they're bankable yet, no one's really kind of testing them because it's just so easy to connect it up to the existing infrastructure that we have. Um, but yeah. Okay. All right. Okay. We would have probably had better quality high streets as well. <laughs> okay. Uh, Katarina, did you want to come in at this point? Thank you very much. Thank you, Steve. I'm quickly going to bring us back from the murky depth of um, what we've been talking about to more cleaner, cleaner levels and how to retrofit houses. So I really liked what you said. Um, just as a quick note, the project I was talking before was is not private development, it's housing association. It's a big development, but... It's, it's new development. So, old development, housing association, yet we're in the middle of Chelsea, 
uh, it sat in a state. It's a project we are doing at HDA. Did I tell you who I work for? I don't think I did. I did not. I work for HDA Design, anyhow. So, um, um, in the middle of Chelsea, it's really close to um, um, kind of the is it King's Road, um, and it's an extremely posh area. In the middle there is an old estate, Saturn, Saturn um, estate, and um, it's lovely triangular shape. And it's, it's been big in the news, in the national news, because at one point they wanted to kind of like um, the housing station then kind of knock it all down, rebuild it. And, and that can go, um, you probably heard about it. Yeah. And then, and then they scrapped that plan. We came on board as HTA, and the architects helped them to retrofit the buildings, and we did the landscape around it. Now, when I got to see them, they're like beautiful, beautifully mentioned blocks. They're, there's basically 12 meters between the blocks. There's, it's really, really, really tight environment. And I got there, and everything is just full of like clutter and basically wall-to-wall -wall block paving. And I looked at it, and I'm like, what on earth is this? We had the downpipes coming down from the building. Then there was a bit of an open, an open gutter type ditch all the way, all along the building, into which those downpipes discharged the water coming from the roof. And then they found themselves eventually into some gully somewhere. And it's like, okay, right, this, this, this needs, this needs changing quickly. And then basically what we then developed is a series of um, um, gardens, but also like buffer plantings for the, for the ground for flats, because you could just walk up to their windows around them, that also added, um, worked as the sats. So they would, they would kind of, the water would come down from the, from the roofs, um, flowing to these rain gardens um, where the water then could sit. And because we're in Chelsea, we were on gravel, so none of it is actually going into any um, sewer systems. It can just infiltrate. And none of this was happening before. And it's just the most wonderful nature-based solution. And this is the thing I want to say here as a landscape architect. It's so easy to go full on technical. Honestly, nature has figured it all out. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I think that's quite often easy easy to forget that 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 the best solutions are the really really simple ones. Okay, great, fantastic. That was really interesting. Rob wants to come in now. Not to say anything expertise, but just you know ask a question to the crowd. So I was um, talking to Grafton Architects, Sterling Prize winning, lovely people, and they were extolling the virtues of Milan, where they they were in sort of the older part of the city and they said that they were in a courtyard and that it started to rain so they sheltered in a colonnade and all the rainwater sort of started swirling around this huge sort of um, drain in the middle of this courtyard and you could see all the water flowing down and uh, it comes back to what we talked about in the talk of out of sight out of mind you know which is I think what Andy alluded to you don't see this stuff so you don't know it's happening um, and so I'm and coming back to another uh, point I think Mike was saying do we I want to ask the panel and the crowd, do we, do we need a movement like Insulate Britain? Do we need a sort of ground, um, you know, a sort of um, groundswell of people saying enough is enough, you know, we, uh, but organized, you know, so not, not just kind of like a few people signing a petition, we don't want this sewer, we don't want this discharge, a sort of, you know, a national movement to sort of say, you know, um, who's, who's going to sort this out? Like a new architectural underground. <laughs> Movement. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, okay, are there any more hands that here we have a hand? Let's take the microphone over. Thank you. Uh, thanks, everyone. Um, 
the idea about retrofit is really, I think, the most important question because Bazalgette was really just retrofitting London, and I think that's what we like. He wasn't dealing with the tabula rasa; he had to deal with all of the complexities of like ownership and the existing fabric of the city, and what did he do with the pipes? And Chicago had a similar problem where they um, their problem was slaughterhouses, which is somehow more grim than just shit, um, where all of the slaughterhouses just discharged into the lake, which was their big source of fresh drinking water, um, and allegedly was sometimes so full of like animal viscera that you could walk across it, which is astonishing to think about. But they... Yeah, thank you for the ooze from the back. <laughs> um, but they embarked on this huge scheme where they raised the city by three meters, like the whole city, every single block of existing building, and like jacked everything up, and then they reversed the flow of the river and basically backflowed it all the way down to some unfortunate city, which I think was maybe Cincinnati, somewhere down the line. Uh, they got really angry and then started dynamiting the canals in some sort of like municipal war of terror against one another. Um, all this, I suppose, is to say that there's something exciting about these big engineering projects, and I think that's being a big missed opportunity with the um, Thames Tideway, is that it's just a big dump pipe in the ground. And there is something about, if any of you have been to Crossness to the pumping station, this like cathedral of water where something really precious is being treated and it's being sort of celebrated in its own sort of like bizarre Victorian fantasy where everything's kind of bedecked and bejeweled. But we've got into this sort of mindset and um, I work for architect practice and you see it at projects all the time where the consideration of where the pipework goes is no one wants to think about it, but there was once upon a time we were talking about the Cummings um, who invented the flushing toilet. Like the idea of having a, like a home with a flushing toilet was once considered like the most exciting thing you could possibly have. And to make it so that having a composting toilet is the most exciting thing your home could possibly have seems like a real aspiration for us all to make for. We just need some very stylish people to be advocating for these, for these things. But... Um, I don't know if anyone also knows a project and someone maybe here might know something about it because it's um, a London project which has been in the news recently but it's about, uh, in Turnpike Lane there's this housing scheme which had these modules attached to the back in the 1970s um, because they were built in the 1910s by the temperance movement and they didn't have any indoor plumbing. So basically there was an outhouse at the end of the garden then they demolished it um, in the 70s and they put these like prefab, somebody had been reading too many of like Richard Rogers' books so they were like, well, do some council prefabs with toilets and bathrooms in, which immediately provided uh, the residents with access to hygiene um, and was a really spectacular thing, but then nobody did anything with them for the intervening 30 to 40 years, and now they're decaying and there's this protracted legal battle happening with the council. So there's also something about maintenance here, and I did think that someone was going to mention the Fatberg. Um, maybe someone has thoughts about the Fatberg and about how we actually look after the infrastructure we have, because that's just as important as also suds and everything else. Yes, and wet wipes. And the wet wipes. The villainous wet wipes, yeah. Yeah, okay. Anybody else? Did you see somebody twitch just then? Was that it? <laughs> Off you go. Sorry. Yeah. yeah, I just wanted to, I mean, talking about the campaign and, um, you know, the radical, you know, is it a radical thing? Yeah, yeah, it is, you know. Um, 
And actually, someone who's interestingly radical about um, what happens to shit is Fergal Sharkey, who um, is a fisherman, but he was the lead singer of the undertones. the undertones. Yeah, so not many people, maybe in this room, is going to are going to remember him. But um, he's enraged about what we're doing to rivers, and most of it is um, is storm runoff. So when you get a very heavy rain, um, and we have combined sewers in this country you know, which is kind of what Basil Jet, I guess, was dealing with back in the day. But the, um, the, the sewage farms, and they are called farms, I think, <laughs> funnily enough, they can't cope with the amount of water that's in the system, and it just gets shoved out in the rivers. And, yeah, because there's a lot of water in the system, it does, you know, probably go out to the sea faster. Um, but, it, you know, he's enraged. Uh, surface against uh, sewage uh, are enraged about what goes on. Um, you know, there are these kind of radical campaigning groups. But I will say it's Fergal Sharkey, mostly. I mean, he's absolutely, you know, when, when you come across a person who, who goes from one, um, one world, you know, is quite prominent in that as, as a pop singer, and then, um, and then becomes well-known in another world. And that is his world, and that's what he's interested in. So you're sort of, in a way, you're taught, you're, I don't want to put words into your mouth, but you're talking. Let, let, so let me make a sort of suggestion. So we've got lots of. There are sort of good good things going on in various places and good ideas floating around, but it's it's about making these things mainstream and acceptable, and politicians feeling that they have an interest in taking these up as causes, I think. Yeah. So yeah. as people have been speaking uh, about how do you get people to look after water more carefully, do you have to impose limits on them? Are you using financial incentives to, 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 to use less of it? It's a bit something I know a bit more about. It's a bit like the arguments about uh, uh, road user charging, congestion charging, and how you, um, you need, we need, as a city, we do need fewer people driving around in cars for a whole variety of reasons, economic and environmental. But it's a very, very difficult thing for politicians to advocate. You know, you can get yourself into a lot of trouble if you go too far, too fast with these things. And then they're very, very difficult. So perhaps, okay, so grassroots kind of movements and so on are, are fine, but they have to reach into the mainstream, including the political mainstream, to really effect change. This is me making a speech now. Is that allowed? Well, it's too late. It's too late. Um, so let me ask a question, perhaps as we sort of come towards the end of it. So let me ask uh, the speakers and anybody else who wants to, do we think that there is the... Is there, is there, is there hope of the political leadership, the political will that we, that we will need to bring about some of the... some more of the good things that you've been talking about i'm going to go to michael first i think the difficulty with that at the moment insulate britain's a really easy idea to get behind it's yeah you know, it's it's in the name we have a problem with you know we we're using too much energy it's expensive to heat our homes our homes are mostly crap and uninsulated insulate them solve the problem yes and i think you know, what we've talked about tonight is a you know it's a broad spectrum of problems that loosely you can sort of tie down to are we using too much water full stop and are we putting too much down the drain so you know the thing that i've been sort of sat here thinking about is actually should we have two water meters should you have a water meter on your out as well as on your in 
you know, should we be charging people for, for what they're putting out? You know, it, it, it's, yeah, it's really easy to think about putting you know, a, an, an inline water bar off your downpipe and attenuating 120 litres before that goes in. You know, there's all of these sort of... People will go insane. They, they, they would do, yeah. But Some people would go absolutely mad. But I, I think, yeah, it's the same thing, same argument as smart, as, you know, smart meters energy. Show people what they're doing. Show them the effect of what there is on, you know, what they're doing on their, on their finances and in terms of you know, the quantum of stuff that they're shoving down the drain. And that's how you have to have to kind of reach out to them, I think. Okay. Um, Katerina, do you want to? Okay, here it comes. Thank you. Um, yes and no is the answer. <laughs> um, yes, Ines, um, I'm absolutely hopeful. Um, um, we, we're going to turn this world around, and it's, it's, it's the future is maybe not as rosy, but it's not, it's not all going to go tits up, basically. That's, that's, my, that's my prediction. But there is a long, really, really long way to go, and it's for each one of us to really start with ourselves. It's so easy to point and go like, oh, dear, they're doing this, they're doing that. And there's so many little things we can do in our own bubble of our own world that changes things. Um, I also truly believe that... Um, we will need to start paying the price, the actual true price for all commodities, be that fuel, food, water, as we talked about. And that price needs to include producing, um, using it, and then kind of um, disposing it uh, in a safe way so we don't leave basically the mess for future generations. And that will change the price very differently and then allows us different um, um, choices as consumers as well. So I, I, am, I am very hopeful, but I also feel like there is, there's, a, there's a long way to go. But we get, I think we get there. Okay. All right. Good. Okay. Thank you very much. And Andy, do you want to have almost the last word, I think? Oh, crikey. Um, well, a few, a few points across all of this. The first thing is, is that I honestly believe, picking up from um, Katrin's point there and, and Mike's we actually do have all the answers for this that we are not talking about moonshots we're talking about adjacent possible technology it's all there and, it, and, and it's eminently feasible we can do all of this and we can do it right now however if we're going to move the dial or even make it flicker from being shit to good um, then we, we need to do something at speed and scale um, because doing a few little nice things here, there, and everywhere else is not going to make any difference. So I had to write some numbers down here because I, I don't want to get them wrong. But I, I, if you just think about housing, there are 30 million homes in the UK. So if you want to do something with 30 million homes and you want to do it by 2050, you've got to be doing hundreds of thousands a month. So if we want to do retrofit suds, we've got to think about it completely differently if we're going to mobilise an army, and our army we need to mobilise are our army of homeowners, and we need to incentivise them to do that. We need to give them some carrots to do that. Brings us back to two things for me. Uh, the one thing is um, uh, governance. It's the, it, you know, it, it, environmental, environmental, social governance. Uh, if, if the environmental stuff is the, the stuff we know we can use. In, deploy to fix it, we can do that. Social, well, that's the habit change. And I think through learning and education, we can do that as well. Governance, that's a tough one. You know, we know we've got terrible governance, not just in our country, but 
uh, around the world at the moment. It's really, really difficult to get clarity across governance. And then, of course, you can't talk about governance without talking about economics. The two are different sides of the same coin. So the economics of this, I think, is perhaps where it starts. And I've, I had a bit of fun today with, that, with my office. And it was, do you remember that there was a time where apparently every prime minister needed to know the cost of staples? So if, I can if you can humor me for a little moment, I'm going to try you uh, on the cost of staples and just see if anyone can get any of these right. So, um, and I, I am a euro, so I'm going to do this with litres, not with pints. Sorry if anyone can only deal with pints. Um, Nigel Farage is a bit further east than here. But anyway, we're litres, we're euros here. So, uh, does anyone know what the price of a, a, a litre of milk is today? Sorry, can I clarify myself? Cow's milk. I've got others on the list. <laughs> 0.19p is what the, the cost of a litre of water is off Thames. Now, I, I did my colleague sat there, Paul, who, who, um, he's, he knows all the numbers. I just get them wrong by a factor of 10 or 1,000. And we think that the way, the amount of the cost of water in the UK is something like £750 billion. Uh, a year, 750 billion, and if that's coming out at 0.2p, so if we were to increase the cost of water by let's say 50% to 0.3p, which is still tiny, we would create something like three uh, 300 billion pounds to spend on the clever stuff that we're not actually doing. And the thing with clever stuff, actually, it will in the right political hands will help them win votes. So I think what we need to do here, we need to, we need to get this sort of political, economic thing working. That is my, 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 my fantasy at one level, is that uh, how we can solve this problem. Excellent. It's by looking at the economics. Thank you. So there's an election for Mayor of London next year, and we look forward to you standing. <laughs> um, okay, I'm going to stand up. Okay. It just reminds me of something with all those numbers that reminds me of, um, I was thinking about maybe going down the wrong line where we were maybe talking about taxation or going to the toilet and then your numbers, Andy, got me thinking, and, and Ted here, who's a mathematician of the joke, um, and did you hear about the constipated mathematician who yes. worked out with a pencil? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yes. The old ones are the best. Right, thank you very much. Thank you very much, everybody. Thanks for listening. For more on Negroni Talks, visit our website at www.forthspace.co.uk, where you can see all our past and upcoming events, or find us and subscribe to the show in iTunes. Negroni Talks, mixing it in architecture.